A clave is both a musical instrument and a type of rhythmic pattern. Two wood cylinders called claves that you hit together to play a clave. The word clave means key in Spanish, which makes sense. Simple though it is, the clave is very much the keystone of Afro-Cuban music. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you joined me to talk about music with rumba clave, music with son clave, and sometimes music with absolutely no clave at all. Strong Songs is entirely listener-supported, so if you want to help me make this show, go to patreon.com slash strongsongs and sign up to become a patron. Doing so will get you access to some pretty cool stuff like behind-the-scenes videos and a new patrons-only podcast feed that I'm going to be having a lot of fun with here in the future. On this episode, I'm digging into the Strong Songs mailbag to answer a whole bunch of your musical questions with topics ranging from Minecraft time signatures to typewriter recordings to several different questions that actually come down to the clave. So many great emails, so little time. So hey, why don't we cut the chit-chat and get to it? Everybody and welcome back to the show. I usually kind of script these intros out, or at least I have been in year three, but there's no script right now. I'm just kind of talking. And uh, I like doing these mailbag episodes because they give me a chance to hear from people from all around the world. And it's just really cool. It's really cool for me to know that this show is traveling as far as it is. And it's really fun to get to answer your questions. Wanted to let you all know about a few things up front. One thing that you might have heard about that I've at least mentioned at times on episodes is the Strong Songs Discord server, which is a sort of a forum where Strong Songs listeners can talk. But since I made that earlier this year, that's been restricted to patrons only. It was sort of a thing that I thought I'd try out with just people who are patrons of the show. And I've decided, after talking with everybody on that Discord, we're going to open it up to the public. So anybody can join. So if you're into this show and you maybe want to come and hang out with some laid back, cool people and talk about music, get some really great music recommendations, you can go over to the Strong Songs Discord. I've put a link to that down in the show notes, and you can just sign up. And let me tell you, there's a lot of really good music recommending going on over there. I've learned about a ton of great records. So yeah, link is down in the show notes. Come and join the Strong Songs Discord. We are looking forward to seeing you over there. All right, let's get into your questions. First one comes from Rob. Rob writes, As a guitarist, I've always struggled with rhythm and pocket, and I enjoy it whenever you talk about groove, like on your recent Q&A episode about strung or broken beats. Can you help me understand what is happening in Wake Up by XTC? Is the band playing in different time signatures? All right, well, let's give this a listen. This is Wake Up by XTC. What a cool track, XTC. What a cool band. I should probably do an episode on them or something at some point. So Andy Partridge and David Gregory are both playing guitar on this record. This is from The Big Express from 1984. And it's either both of them playing or one of them overdubbed. It's a pretty similar guitar tone, so I'm not totally sure. What's going on here is kind of a double whammy. It's a double-layered rhythmic trick. So first of all, they've offset the two guitar tracks and panned them hard left and right, and they're in different rhythms, so it kind of knocks you off balance rhythmically to be 
begin with. And then they're also doing a syncopated fake-out intro, like I've talked about a lot of times in Q&A episodes, where they make you think the downbeat is in one place when, in fact, they're playing upbeat. So that guitar over on the right that's playing steady notes is actually playing on the two and the four, and it's really easy for your ear to think that it's on the one and the three. So let's start with those guitar parts before the rhythm section comes in. I'm just going to skip over the fake-out and tell you what they're actually playing. So the first thing you want to key in on is the guitar on the right, which is playing a steady and very easy to follow rhythm. So the important thing to understand is that these are upbeats, so the downbeats are in the spaces between. One, two, three, four, like that. You kind of got to get your head around that to begin with. It's helpful if you've heard the song a bunch of times because once the drums come in, that's easier to hear. So now let me count it. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Keep counting it on your own. So that second guitar over on the left, that's where it gets tricky. That guitar is playing a different, also syncopated figure that's almost a clave. It's not quite, it's a hemiola, but it's almost a clave. I mentioned the clave in the intro. This is kind of a pseudo clave. It's what's called the hemiola, which has been something that is subdivided into threes, is placed over something that's subdivided into twos. So like a three over two, six over four, three over four kind of a thing. So this rhythm starts on the upbeat, and then it goes every third sixteenth note. So if the tempo is here... The groove is one ba ga da 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 one da ga da 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 one ba ga da ga da da ga 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 It's actually kind of tricky to explain it technically the way that I am. Like I want to say what it is, but using words like hemiola, numbers like three over four. It's kind of just something that you can hear, and I think if we were in the same room together, I just would have you clap this rhythm, boom, ba, 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 and you would probably pick it up pretty quickly without needing any of those words or any of those numbers. So what XTC is doing is combining those two grooves. Over on the right, there's a straight upbeat groove, just playing constant steady upbeats. Over on the left, a hemiola three over four groove. They both start on the upbeat, but then they diverge. So they kind of go out of focus and then they go back into focus. When you put them together, it creates a really cool kind of ping-ponging rhythmic effect. So you just need to learn how to count this. Here we go. It's one, two, three, four, one, two, three, the challenge, of course, is how syncopated it all is. Neither of the guitars are playing the downbeat at the beginning without the drums in, so you have to provide it yourself, and that takes some confidence. My advice for building that confidence is focus on that right-hand guitar, the one that's playing upbeats, and just get comfortable counting the downbeats. Three, four, one, two really hear where it fits in with those upbeats it's playing and pretty soon you'll start to hear where the rest of the band fits in too. Good luck! Dave writes, relevant to a technique that's popped up on the podcast a few times, I'd like to hear your thoughts on a pair of songs, Waterfall and Don't Stop by The Stone Roses. If you're not already familiar with them, listen to them both before looking up anything about them. All right, well, I did listen to them both, but I'm, I'm not going to do it live on the show because I already checked them out to see if I wanted to answer this question. And I do. It's pretty cool. But I will not tell you what these two songs have in common. So here's Waterfall by The Stone Roses. Thank you. 
an early tune on their 1989 self-titled record, and here's how Waterfall ends. This is actually probably a more important excerpt to hear. Okay, so that's how Waterfall ends. The next tune that Dave is asking about is actually immediately after it on the album. It's called Don't Stop. Here's how that song begins. So this sound is probably familiar to you. It's probably ringing a bell, just in case. These are a lot of the same chords and sounds from Waterfall, but they're reversed. The recording is now playing backwards. Now, Don't Stop is actually a lot more interesting and complex than if they just took Waterfall and reversed it. For starters, even if I unreverse that opening that opening track that I was just playing, it doesn't sound exactly like Waterfall. They've added a lot of warble and other effects. It's the sounds from Waterfall, but it's playing backwards and it's also just slightly different. This is what that same excerpt you just heard would sound like if it were re-reversed or rather unreversed and playing what it would normally sound like forward. Now here's where things get really Christopher Nolan-y. The actual song Don't Stop is just a different song, and it has lyrics that are sung forward, though they're kind of sung in a way that makes them sound like they're going backward. Meanwhile, on Waterfall, the ostensibly forward-pointing song, the same section, the lyrics sound like this. So this is really cool stuff. Stone Roses weren't the first band to experiment with backwards recording, but these two songs are definitely taking it to a pretty impressive level. Like, it's really cool to think about writing a song and then writing a second version of the same song that's designed to be played backwards, but with a different melody that works over the backward harmony as if that harmony were moving forward. I'd have to do a much deeper analysis to like really understand the finer points of this, but that's the gist of what's going on, and it would really be fun to tackle these two songs down the road. I'm definitely not making any promises, because that would be a very challenging episode to make, but the Stone Roses are an amazing band, and this would be really fun. This whole thing actually makes me think of one of my favorite more recent albums, Hawaii Part 2 by Miracle Musical. One of their tracks, The Mind Electric, starts playing backwards. And then halfway through it flips and the entire song plays back out forwards. Made it through the night, never they ponder whether electric calming if you look at it right. So it's basically a musical palindrome. 
it's a super cool thing. It's much more straightforward than what the sonoroses are doing, but it has this really neat effect. Like it feels like you're going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper underground, and then you climb back out from underground halfway through when it goes back into into um, playing forward. I feel like when I listen to music playing backwards for long enough, it starts to sound like it's moving forward to me, and it's a really cool feeling to just finally have it revealed to you and to get to hear what you were just listening to backwards and trying to process through your brain in real time played for you forward so you can finally hear what that music really was doing in a way that just feels much more clear. It feels like something snapping into focus. So it's a really cool trick. Stone Roses were definitely onto something with this. And yeah, this is a this is a really neat thing, Dave. Thanks for sending it. Don't Jamie writes, I was listening to the Minecraft soundtrack, as one does. The whole soundtrack is quite nice and provides a beautiful, peaceful ambiance to the game. It's an unusual but strangely fitting theme for an adventure game such as this one. Anyway, I was listening to the main theme, titled Minecraft, but I can't work out what the time signature is in, and I was wondering if you had any ideas. Well, this is actually a pretty straightforward answer, Jamie. Let's listen. This is Minecraft from C418's iconic soundtrack to the video game Minecraft. So this music was composed by Daniel Rosenfeld, who's also known as C418. This is one of the greatest video game soundtracks of all time. I think it's so, so beautiful and so good. And actually this main title theme is just in 4-4 time. It's just very slow and it's a little bit lazy about the time. But uh, let's listen and I'll count along with it. Here we go. One, two, three, four. You can probably feel, right, that it's a little halting. It feels like occasionally chords in that piano will kind of lay back a little bit. They'll come in a little later than you're expecting, which is part of the relaxed feeling of this music, I think. But it's really in just a nice, slow, kind of rubato 4-4 time. One, two, three, four. really is just such beautiful music. My friends over at the audio-focused podcast 20,000 Hertz recently did a fantastic episode where they talked with Rosenfeld about his music and his approach to sound design. It's a great episode. I really recommend it. I'll link it down in the show notes. Man, Minecraft. It's a pretty good game. Paulina writes, I've been listening to a lot of movie soundtracks lately and I ran into an old favorite of mine, Atonement by Dario Marianelli. Throughout the soundtrack, he uses what sounds like typewriters, which is very appropriate given what the movie is about. And I was wondering, how does one learn to play a typewriter? Like, do people just learn percussion in general for these unusual objects that are then used as instruments? In terms of practicality, how are they tuned? Or how do musicians go about putting these types of sounds into their music? This is a great question and, uh, and one that I have a little bit of experience with. So this is the opening track, Bryony from Atonement. And at first, the typewriter is just typing. But then, <laughs> it subtly starts to play in time. A 6-8 kind of thing. It's a very, very cool effect. 
So I said that I have a bit of experience with doing this. That's only kind of true. I used the tried and true typewriter as percussion effect back on my first album in 2009 on a tune called The Mayor. When I did it, I definitely could not get a typewriter sounding good enough and didn't have the resources to track down a bunch of different typewriters and find one that I could play in time. So I just use a kind of, in retrospect, terrible sounding typewriter sample. Doesn't sound nearly as good as the typewriter from Atonement, but I would argue it got the job done, and the job was setting up that March-like groove. <laughs> that was maybe the silliest song on that album. So anyways, Pauline, to your question, um, I love this sort of thing. This is typically referred to as field recording. It's also known as Foley, which is just sound effects work. When you go see like a live variety show and there's a person with a table covered in a whole bunch of stuff and they're doing all the sound effects during a radio play, that's the Foley operator or the Foley artist. So this is a type of sound design, but there's a lot of overlap between musicians and sound designers, and the best sound designers tend to think like musicians. Some common household items just have a naturally percussive quality to them, like a typewriter or Chopping vegetables, that's a very rhythmic thing, and you've seen a lot of sort of musical montages in movies where people are chopping vegetables and it starts to kind of get in time. Household chores, a lot of chores that people do can be very rhythmic. Lots of things that we interact with every day make amazing sounds, and it's pretty easy to turn those sounds into a sort of a thump or a pop or a sizzle to combine their different timbres into something that works as a groove. That Broadway show Stomp, if you've ever seen it, I'm sure a lot of people listening are aware of it, that was entirely predicated on this idea. It was people using everyday objects, you know, trash can lids and brooms and whatever else. They were using them like percussion instruments. They were making these kind of incredible grooves out of things that you may have lying around the house. And I know people kind of make fun of Stop now, like it's seen as kind of cheesy, but man, Stop was Stop was pretty amazing. Let's let's be real. There was some pretty cool stuff happening during that show. So I'm sure there was a lot of work done when they were planning Stomp on just figuring out what things would sound cool, what different objects they could combine with other objects to create grooves that would be, you know, orally and visually compelling. I remember seeing that show. I can't remember where, maybe in Indiana when I was a kid, and some guy like took a solo with a janitor's broom, and it was it was pretty incredible. I mean, I was young. I think I would still think it was incredible now. Anyways, Pauline, to answer your question, I don't know how they did this specific typewriter, like if they did anything to it. My guess would be that yes, the person typing on this typewriter was a percussionist, maybe even just the composer. I don't think it was like just a normal person using a typewriter. A typewriter has so many natural sounds that lend themselves to being turned into grooves. There's the clicking of the keys, obviously. There's also the movement of the carriage. There's the new line bell, at least in some models. And in order to to get a typewriter to turn into a groove, you're probably going to be typing like three letters and then hitting a space and then three letters and then you do a line break. Like it's a much, it's not really something that's going to sound like it actually sounds when you're typing on it. So it's more likely that you would get a percussionist to do this to get the groove right. I know a lot of musicians who are constantly on the lookout for cool new sounds that they might incorporate into things that they're working on. I'm actually increasingly like that. I'm really realizing just how many cool sounds there are. And every time you use some field recording, some sound that you heard out in nature, it can really add a lot to a song that you're writing or a recording that you're making. I'd imagine that for this film, they they probably auditioned a few typewriters to find the one that sounds the ex exact way that they wanted. Like, there are definitely typewriters that don't make that super pleasing, crisp sound that's playing during this track. I could see even going to a used typewriter shop, looking around, clicking on all the different typewriters until you find one that sounds the way that you like. They really mic'd this beautifully. I mean, it sounds incredible. And in general, I mean, I think that's kind of how this works. 
Imogen Heap actually talked about this in our recent interview episode. This is something that I've been thinking about more as well, and it's definitely something that she's done a lot of. Just the magic of the music that's all around us, the music of the world, you know, the, the many things that we hear that could then be incorporated into more formal music. And that's what Marianelli did with the Atonement soundtrack, and the results are really cool. Magnus writes, my question is about famous beats or rhythms. There's the famous Bo Diddley beat that is familiar to anyone when they hear it, and it got its name from the man who popularized it, though like any musical inventor, he probably got the inspiration for it from something that already existed. Magnus continues, In terms of other famous beats, I began wondering about that very particular rhythm that is used in songs like You Can't Hurry Love by The Supremes, Lust for Life by Gee Pop, and Last Night by The Strokes, just to name a few. You know, bum 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 ba da Some Googling tells me Iggy Pop and David Bowie got the inspiration from an Armed Forces Network station identifier, but also that many Motown songs had already been using it, so they obviously didn't invent it. So where did this rhythm originate? Does it have a particular name? And what makes it so darn catchy? Okay, so there's a lot to this question, but first of all, man, Diana Ross sounds ridiculous on this. She sounds like a crisp spring afternoon just standing in front of a microphone. It's okay to rewind a little bit. As you suspected, Magnus, the Bo Diddley beat, otherwise known as the hand jive beat, definitely a very well-known beat, it sounds to me like it's based on a clave. So returning to that idea of the clave that I mentioned in the intro to this episode, this is definitely something that's derived from the clave, and it's one way that Afro-Cuban music suffuses everything in American music. This is something I talk about a lot, but certainly the clave turns up everywhere, even in stuff that isn't expressly, quote, Latin-influenced, unquote. So the clave is a rhythmic figure with an incredibly rich international backstory that spans multiple cultures all around the world. There's tons of scholarly research about the clave. There's also whole musical cultural histories that have their own interpretations of the clave. I am not a clave expert. I just kind of know what the clave basically is. So this is a pretty surface level explanation. But the clave, like a basic 3-2 sewn clave, it goes like this. 2, 3, 4. I mentioned in the intro that the clave is also an instrument. I recently bought a set of clave. It's basically two wooden dowels. You hold them in a certain way and you click them together in that clave rhythm and it sounds like this. People often refer to a clave as 3-2 or 2-3. That just refers to how the notes are grouped. That was a 3-2 clave because it goes 1, 2, 3, 1, 2. So there's a grouping of 3 and then a grouping of 2. A 2-3 clave would go mm, ba, ba, uh, uh. Uh, so it just kind of flips it. Rumba and son refer to whether one of the notes is syncopated or not, but I'm not going to get into that. It's just, it's a sound that you've definitely heard before. For example, musical fans or anyone who's been listening to the In the Heights soundtrack will know that sound very well. The clave is actually the very first thing you hear on the opening number. There's a 3-2 son clave that just begins the whole thing. Lights up on Washington Heights up at the break of day I wake up and I got this little punk I gotta chase away That was Anthony Ramos in the recent movie version of In the Heights but the Broadway cast recording begins the same way not with a singer, not with a melody, but with the clave 
Lights up on Washington Heights up at the break of day. I wake up and I got this little punk I gotta chase away. That strikes me as a very deliberate thing that In the Heights begins, not with a singer, but with the clave. The clave are just such an important part of so much Latin music. It's pretty cool that this musical that's all about honoring Latin culture, Latin American culture, begins that way. The clave is a really piercing sound if you've ever played them. It really cuts through any band, and as a result, it's actually a really important part. Even though it's simple, you basically just play whatever the figure is for the piece that you're playing, a 3-2, a 2-3, a rumba, a son, whatever. You play that the entire time. You just sit there and play it. But you have to be so consistent because the part that you're playing is so audible. Like the conga or timbale player, they may have more to do. You know, they have drums to hit. It might seem more fun. But if the clave player in the band isn't super locked in, the whole thing can fall apart. I am Usnavi, and you probably never heard my name. Reports of my fame are greatly exaggerated, exacerbated by the fact that my syntax is... So those are the extreme basics on the clave. The Bo Diddley beat, bop, 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 bop. It's the same rhythm, right? So it's totally derived from that same kind of a groove. So that's the Bo Diddley groove. But in terms of the Supremes groove that you're talking about, I definitely agree it's a well-known groove. It's very common. There was that Jet song that totally shamelessly used it. Um, the Arcade Fires, maybe their most legendary song, Wake Up, that actually transitions into that groove in the back third. So to try to answer your questions, where did this rhythm originate? That's a dicey one. I definitely can't answer that definitively. I think most people do associate it with that Supremes track. That came out in 1966. Nothing was ever the first of anything, but You Can't Hurry Love was a huge hit. It definitely popularized that groove. I think that when a lot of people channel that now or use that groove, that's kind of where they're drawing it from. Um, I don't know who came up with it for that song, whether it was the songwriters, it may have been the players in the session band. Um, this was recorded by the legendary Motown band the Funk Brothers and I have to say James Jamerson's bassline on this like his interpretation of that bassline is a huge part of what makes it so sticky. He was arguably the most melodically inventive and groovy bassist who ever lived and it's entirely possible that he just came up with this bassline right there in the studio. I will say though, whoever came up with it for this specific song, it does kind of owe a bit to the clave as well. It's got more notes, it's not the same rhythm, but you can kind of feel the same rhythmic undercurrent under bop, 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 and bop, 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 but up. They're different, but they have a kind of a similar swing, and it functions kind of like a clave in that it's this repeated figure that runs underneath the entire song. As for what I would call it, if I were trying to get a band to play this, I would probably be like, it's a Supremes thing. And then I'd go, bum, 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 and everybody in the band would instantly get it, because as you pointed out, everybody knows this groove. It's everywhere. It's very common and well-known. And as for why it works so well, I think that it has to do with the way that it juxtaposes downbeats and upbeats. So it starts with three quarter notes, they're downbeats. One, two, three, just really straightforward. If it were just quarter notes, it would be bump, 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 pretty boring. But then it rests for an eighth note for half a beat, and it follows up with three more quarter notes that are all on upbeats. So it goes bump, 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 then uh, uh, uh. So you're kind of like on the floor, and then it repeats itself on the ceiling. You could just play it as a pattern of three and then three without all those extra notes that come after that, and it'd still groove pretty hard. Bump, 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 uh, 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 uh,
So I think this groove works because it's constantly jumping back and forth between downbeats and upbeats, which is just exciting sounding. It's going between being grounded and being syncopated. There's also just the way the Funk Brothers felt this groove, the way that James Jamerson played this bass line, the way that Diana Ross sang the song over that groove. I mean, the whole thing, it's just undeniable. It's no surprise that people are still using this groove so many decades later. Tolkien writes, I want to start listening to lossless music. Right now, I do not really hear a difference, and I want to learn about that magic. Which are, from your perspective, the best headphones to do that? Okay, so lossless music. So here's the thing. There's been a lot of talk about lossless music lately. Apple made a big deal out of adding a lossless option to Apple Music earlier this year. Spotify has announced a competing lossless service called Hi-Fi that I don't think they've launched yet, but they're working on it. What that means is that relative to a digital master, a lossless format has all of the audio information of the original. It's just usually in a somewhat smaller file, thanks to complicated technical innovations in the world of audio file compression. So ever since the rise of the compact disc in the 1990s, digital music has been in a state of flux because digital formats and, more importantly, digital compression technology have been constantly changing. This was true of analog formats, too. They were always also in a state of flux. Look at the way the records changed from the 1940s to the 1970s, or the introduction of stuff like 8-track tapes or cassette tapes. There, there's definitely always been this state of flux in the way that we record, document, and sort of distribute and listen to music. So that was definitely true of digital music and CDs were the first time that digital music became widespread. A CD has taken an analog signal, something that was recorded on tape from instruments, it was entirely analog, and converted it into ones and zeros. In the late 90s and the early 2000s, compressed MP3s really took off. Anyone who was around then will remember that was when MP3s seemed like this miracle technology. They could take a 50 megabyte uncompressed CD file and convert it into like a 5 megabyte file, which was way easier to share on the pretty new internet that a lot of us had. MP3 compression also coincided with the rise of file sharing services like Napster and LimeWire, which were illegal at the time, but everybody used them, and they paved the way for the corporate-owned streaming services like Apple Music and Spotify that we listen to today. So MP3s, which again were popular really in the early 2000s, those are what's called a lossy format because they remove some of the audio information usually in high frequencies or in other places where you won't really notice it or most people won't really notice it, and that's how you get something that sounds good enough and is way, way smaller, which was a big deal, especially when bandwidth and storage space were at such a premium the way that they were in the early 2000s. So you've probably heard a badly compressed MP3. Certainly the MP3s that a lot of us listened to in the early 2000s were pretty badly compressed, and you can hear it in the cymbals a lot of times. Like, it just sounds really kind of weird and kind of almost watery, like it's gargling or coming through water. It can sound really pretty terrible. Like, here's an example. I compressed that example of You Can't Hurry Love that we were just listening to down to a 64 kilobytes per second MP3, which is extremely compressed. Nothing is compressed that hard anymore because we have so much more space on all of our devices. But it used to be back in the day you would totally hear things that were this compressed. You can definitely tell that the audio quality has been compromised. Check it out. Ugh. I need love, love So that's a rough and ready example, but that's like nails on a chalkboard to me. The tambourine in particularly, it sounds like it was recorded in the vacuum of space. It's fairly horrifying. Um, it's not pleasant, but fortunately it's no longer the norm. Because the thing is, lossless music sounds great, but I think that most compressed music these days sounds pretty great. Like, 
technology has come a long way. Music streaming apps have gotten pretty good at providing you music that sounds pretty great. You can hear everything. There's definitely no obvious like artifacting in the upper register and the in the high frequencies. And that's thanks to constant innovation in the realm of audio compression that's been going on over the last 20 years. In the mid-2000s, that was the biggest shift. They went from MP3 to AAC, which stands for Advanced Audio Codec. It's a new type of compression that had actually been around for a little while, but it became widely adopted in the later 2000s and they were able to make recording sound much closer to CD quality, pretty much indistinguishable, in my opinion anyways. So now we have Apple promoting ALAC, Advanced Lossless Audio Codec. They say that can go to CD quality and beyond, actually. They can go to 24-bit, 192 kilohertz music. CD quality is 16-bit, 44.1 kilohertz. Honestly, if you're streaming a modern AAC file through like a Sonos speaker or a Bluetooth speaker from your phone or a pair of decent AirPods or like earbuds or headphones, it probably sounds pretty good. I mean, this podcast, I think, sounds pretty good. This podcast is actually compressed into a modern MP3. Like everything you're listening to is compressed, and I think it sounds basically fine. I can hear the difference with lossless in the right listening environment, but I only really hear it when I place the two recordings side by side and I'm really listening for it. And neither one sounds close to as good as a record or another analog format would sound in the same setting. So I just want to temper the hype on lossless music a little bit. There is a difference. You can hear it in the right listening environment, but it's not that huge. And I'm personally not all that excited about it. Now that Dolby stuff that Apple is promoting, that stuff is pretty wild. Sometimes I don't know exactly how I feel about it. I'll need to listen to some more Dolby mixed albums, but that can actually be pretty cool. Uh, but that's, I think that's a little more exciting and a little more obviously, you know, audible than the lossless thing. But okay, if you are excited about lossless music, I don't want to yuck your yum. Um, it is, you know, it can be a cool thing to, to hear a little bit more in the music. So here's what you're going to want. If you're getting headphones to appreciate lossless music, obviously you'll want to go and turn on all the things to have lossless music downloaded to your phone, your computer, whatever you're listening on. For the headphones, I recommend two things. They should be wired and they should be open back. Open back headphones have a wider stereo image. They leak sound so people around you will be able to hear them. I've talked about this on past Q&A episodes, but I generally like them for listening to music as opposed to monitoring music in the studio, using them when you're recording. Um, they leak audio, so they're not great if you're like tracking vocals, the mic will pick up, you know, what you're listening to, your reference. So um, I like those for listening. I'd recommend getting some open back ones. I have an open back set of AKG monitoring headphones that I use for mixing, an open back set of Grado headphones that I like for listening. I don't use them enough because I'm rarely in a circumstance where I like want to plug them in and sit and listen with them. But Grado does make good headphones. But you know, there are plenty of other companies too. Um, Sennheiser makes great headphones. A lot of people like Bear Dynamic. I use them in the studio, but I find them a little bright for listening. So there's a lot of good brands out there. It's kind of hard to go wrong if you go with one of those brands. There's a lot of different models. They're not all that different. Um, so just kind of pick something that's in your price range that you like. As far as the wired thing goes, I'd say just get a set of wired headphones because as frustratingly, bewilderingly committed as some of these tech companies seem to be to eliminating the analog phono jack from their devices, wired headphones are still the most consistent way to be able to access uncompressed audio. I'm always seeing wireless formats all over the place saying, oh, you can do lossless wireless here. We can do Bluetooth with lossless audio. I find that stuff, in my experience anyways, it works on certain devices or certain pairings of devices. Sometimes it's proprietary, so you're kind of locked into one system or another one. The nice thing about a phono plug with a wired set of headphones is it's a phono plug. It's not proprietary. It'll work with anything you can plug it into, and you'll be accessing uncompressed pure audio insofar as the device you're plugged into is providing it. And that's 
not always a guaranteed thing and you need an adapter. I mean, it can still be a whole pain, but you might as well get wired headphones because those will work forever. So I hope that that's helpful. And yeah, if you find yourself listening to lossless music and kind of thinking, is that it? Is this me? Am I just not hearing enough? You know, should I be using even better headphones or something? No, it's not you. It's a pretty subtle difference, honestly, um, on the whole. And compressed music really mostly sounds fine these days, unless you're really into the audiophile thing. And if that's you, well, then you could get a CD player and just listen to CDs, or you could get a record player and listen to things on vinyl, because that is a whole other world of audio, because then you're listening to a much more direct and pure version of the source with no digital conversion happening at all, depending on the record that you're listening to. And that's where you get into the kind of richer audiophile world that goes a little bit beyond lossless digital rendering. But that is a whole other conversation. I hope that some of that headphone advice is helpful and that you get a, a good pair of headphones that you like. Andrew writes, there's a chorusy guitar sound in both Phoebe Bridger's Chinese Satellite and Olivia Rodrigo's Good For You that is like instant nostalgia for me. I also heard it in Cindy Lauper's Time After Time. Where does that distinctive sound come from? So this was kind of a fun question because I got to go into each tune and try to figure out the specific sound that Andrew was asking about, and I, I think I did figure it out. In the Phoebe Bridger tune, it's during a later verse in the song. You can hear it kind of over on the right. It's during this nice little guitar counter melody. And on the Olivia Rodrigo tune, it's the guitar tone during the instrumental break. And then, just to get the ultimate reference example of this, which Andrew also cited, there's Eric Bazilian's guitar tone on Cindy Lauper's Time After Time. So that sound, which Andrew described as chorusy, is in fact a chorus effect. It's a slightly different sort of chorus on each of those three examples, but yeah, it's a chorus guitar, and it really is kind of an instant nostalgia button. It works that way for me too. Chorus was a really popular effect in the 1980s, and it came to be associated with a lot of pop music, and actually I think that time after time, like Bazillion's guitar tone on that is friggin' definitive. I mean, that is a, just something that everyone will associate with the early 1980s, and he's just, he's using a really strong chorus effect there. But, you know, especially like a Strat on one of the middle pickups with chorus turned on, it evokes a certain something. So each chorus unit works slightly differently. The basic way it works is that it duplicates your signal. It plays the original signal mixed with a modulated and slightly delayed signal. It creates this sort of watery, diffuse sound. Here's me playing just a little bit of guitar with no effects. Here's the same thing with a boss chorus pedal turned on.
There are so many types of chorus pedals these days. There's an overlap with other sorts of modulation pedals like flangers, things like that. You can get a ton of different sounds from most chorus pedals. You can get a really subtle shimmer on your sound or you can get like a rotary organ effect that's super intense. I think that actually on Time After Time, Bazillion was playing on a Roland JC120 Jazz Chorus Amp. That's a specific amplifier that has its own built-in chorus sound. I can't find a definitive source on what he was using, so it could be like a boss pedal or something. There are a few different things that can get that sound, but it does really sound like a JC120. At any rate, chorus is super cool. I love the sound. I actually find it to be pretty inspiring when I'm just fooling around and writing. There are so many chorus pedals out there that can sound so many different ways. It's definitely worth getting one if you mess around with guitar effects. And as you can hear from those contemporary examples I just played, there will always be room for chorus guitar in popular music. Joe writes, Parquet Court's Wide Awake from their 2018 album of the same name starts off pretty normal. Then the guitar and bass line combine in the first verse and everything seems to go sideways. My mind tells me these progressions shouldn't work, but they do. Halfway through the first verse, a second guitar part comes in and again my mind is telling me this shouldn't work with the existing two lines, the bass and the first guitar, but somehow it does. Am I missing something? Is there a deeper logic to these chord progressions and notes that actually do work better together than you think upon first, or for that matter, repeated listens? Or is there some sort of happy accident pairings here that are fueling this groove? All right, well, let's listen. Let's, here's the start of Parquet Court's Wide Awake. This is just the bass and the guitar. Two one-note melodies that work pretty well together. Okay, so you can probably hear there's some harmonic tension between the line the bass is playing and the line the guitar is playing. Notice I said line for both instruments, that's because both the guitar and the bass are playing single note melodies. The guitar is not playing chords, it's playing what could basically just be a bass line, it's just up the octave. So we've got these kind of two dueling counter melodies, and between the two of them they create some really nice tension. Though it sounds crunchy and dissonant, it's actually all in one key center. It's basically in this like G minor 9 kind of a funk thing, minor 9 or minor 13, uh, the 13 becomes important later. So let's start with just those two parts. We'll start with the bass actually. Um, here's the bass line which I'll play with just sort of a basic drum groove going just so we can get our rhythmic bearings. So pretty straightforward when you take out the guitar we're pretty clearly in a kind of G minor funk thing. Bass line sounds like a funky bass line. Uh, it's a good bass line, but it's pretty straightforward. Andrew Savage and Austin Brown both play guitar in this group, so this is one of them playing this lead guitar part. So check this out and just try to hear that bass line and then also hear what the guitar is playing. It's a cool guitar part, it was fun to learn that one. So the thing is, they're both playing in G minor, kind of a G minor 9 thing. When you listen to the guitar part on its own, it sounds like it's a little bit weird, it's kind of vertical, the notes are a little kind of purposefully arbitrary sounding, but it's still all in the key of G minor 9. It's when you put the bass and the guitar together that it starts to sound weird. It's the kind of magic of musical combination. In context, things can sound very different than they sound on their own. They're purposefully doing this. They're making it so the bass and the guitar kind of shoulder past one another a bunch. There's a lot of little clashes. They're sort of playing different intervals, you know, than you would expect to hear together, and it creates a discordant, unsettled feeling. Mm -hmm. 
It's kind of two phrases. You can hear at the start of each phrase, they're rhythmically together. Bop, bop, they both play those notes. And then for the next two bits, they pull apart. Until right at the end of the phrase, boom, boom, they kind of snap back together. It's confusing sounding and it's meant to be, but if you think of this as kind of two phrases, the two lines have these brief moments where they lock together at the start and the end of the phrase, and it's in the middle where they kind of pull apart. And I think that's why when you say, Joe, that it doesn't sound like it should work, but somehow it does, that's because part of the time they're purposefully out of sync, but when it matters at the beginnings and the ends of the phrase, they lock in. Listen to my little recreation one more time and really try to hear that. Listen to how the bass and the guitar start together, bop, bop, right on those downbeats, then they pull apart, they're both playing in time, but they're playing different rhythms, and then they snap back together, bop, 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 for the beginning of the next phrase. Here we go. Okay, this is fun. All right, so we're not done. Joe mentions a second guitar part that comes in that again sounds like it shouldn't work, and yet somehow it does. So this does add another element of chaos to this. It's a kind of classic, stratty, gritty, funk sound. I'm hearing a kind of G minor 7 to G minor 6 thing. You can really hear that 7 going to the 6 up on the top. It's an F going to an E natural. And there isn't an E natural really happening in the bass or in the uh, the first guitar part. So that's a new element, and that makes it feel like, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I, I had kind of gotten my ear around what they were doing, but now there's also this natural sixth in there, but that's also totally in bounds. I mean, we're just in G minor nine, G minor 13, or G minor six here. Like none of these notes are super dissonant or out of the key. They just don't quite fit together, but that kind of makes them fit together beautifully. It's kind of like a scene in a movie, but one too many characters are talking at the same time. Like if you took out that lead guitar part, the single note guitar part, and you just left in that rhythm track, you get a pretty straightforward funk thing. So if that's just two people having a normal conversation about like trying to find an apartment, the lead guitar is a third person who walks into the room and just starts listing pizza toppings in a very loud speaking voice. It's weird, it's really cool, and that dissonance, that conflict is totally what makes this tune go. Without all that conflict between the lead guitar part and the bass part, it'd be much more unremarkable, and if the conflict didn't resolve at the start of each phrase and give your ear something to kind of indicate to you that the band members are on the, on the same page, that they're doing this on purpose, it'd sound too chaotic. It's a pretty perfect mix, though, as it is. It's really hip. I'd never really listened to this band, but they're great. So yeah, Joe, I hope that answers your question, and Parquet Courts, check them out. Patrick writes, a neighbor has been learning saxophone lately, something I'm sure you approve of. That's true, Patrick, I do. He continues, other than scales, the most common piece she uses to practice is Careless Whisper, and she plays it a lot.
It's fine, she's actually quite good, but is that song a common one for practicing the saxophone, and if so, why? Might she just be a big George Michael fan? And George Michael episode of Strong Songs, when? Well, to answer your last question first, I will definitely do an episode on George Michael at some point. Shout out to Strong Songs listener Limmy, who was recently extolling the many virtues of George Michael on the Strong Songs Discord. Michael is one of those musicians who's well-known, yet also underrated. He's written a ton of amazing music over the years, way beyond just the hit singles that he's known for. I would love to talk about him on the show, so yeah, that'll definitely happen. As for Careless Whisper, I mean, I can't speak to why your neighbor might be practicing that solo, but my guess is it's a super famous solo. It's not incredibly difficult to play, it's a great melody, and it's just really fun to play it. Okay, so here's the thing. I actually kind of wound up going down a rabbit hole on this because I've always thought that this was an alto saxophone playing this solo, and I just played it on alto. That was me playing on an alto. That sounded basically right. But in researching the answer to this question, I found an anecdote that kind of blew my mind. This solo was recorded by Steve Gregory. He's a great saxophone player, came in to record it. Apparently he was the latest in a long line of saxophones and they were really struggling to find the sound that George Michael wanted. This song is in the key of D minor, so the first note is a concert E. That's the ninth. The ninth, incidentally, is a big part of what's so distinctive about this solo. It starts up on the ninth, which is a lovely kind of floating place to start a melody. It's a very distinct sound and it's really cool. So anyways, the story goes, Gregory actually played this on tenor saxophone, which would be kind of higher on the saxophone than it would be on alto, since the tenor is a bigger and lower instrument than the alto, so in order to play the same notes, it needs to play higher on the instrument. So on tenor sax, that high note, the top note, the ninth in that melody, that transposes to a high F sharp. And if you want to know more about transposition, I've talked about it on a past Q&A episode, just go with me. So Gregory's playing an old Selmer Mark VI. It's a beautiful instrument. It's actually the same kind of tenor saxophone that I have. It's one of my most cherished possessions. The Mark VI was made before the addition of a high F sharp key to the saxophone. So that means it's a lot harder to do a big glissando like he does, that big run up to the up to the ninth to that first note. It's a lot harder to do that if you're playing an F sharp without a side F sharp key. You can do it, but you have to do a kind of a fork altissimo fingering, and it's just a little less smooth getting to it. So the source for this is saxophonist Dan Forshaw, who recounts the story as it was told to him by Steve Gregory, the saxophonist on Careless Whisper, in a video that he's got up on his YouTube channel, and I've linked it in the show notes. I came across a transcript of that story on the song's Wikipedia page and read it, and that was kind of what got me started on this, uh, started down this rabbit hole. I didn't actually watch Forshaw's video because I wanted to try to figure it out myself for this show. After listening back to this solo and then doing some sleuthing that I'll explain in a minute, I actually do think this is what they did. So let me explain what they apparently did. Gregory could easily get to the high F on his tenor saxophone, because that's the highest note that you can easily just go up to without going into the altissimo register, but he couldn't get to the high F sharp, right? So they recorded him playing the solo down a half step in concert D flat minor, and then they tuned the whole solo up a half step after the fact, which is wild. And then apparently George Michael really liked that sound. So 
I'm going to try to recreate that sound because of course I am. Now that I've learned this, I have to see if I can make something that sounds like this kind of weird quasi-alto tenor saxophone, like a C melody saxophone, I guess. I got to see if I can make this sound. So here's me playing Steve Gregory's saxophone solo from Careless Whisper in D flat minor down a half step from where the song is recorded on tenor saxophone. Now here's that same solo pitch shifted up a semitone into the key of D minor. but that kind of sounds like what they're doing. It's super weird that they would do that, but there you go. So yeah, I use pitch shifting software to get that effect to raise my tenor sax by a semitone. In the studio, apparently they did it the other way around. They slowed down the tape while recording, then sped it up to normal speed, um, enough to raise it that semitone. So that's one reason that our tones are a little different. I also just, I play a hard rubber mouthpiece. I have a kind of darker tenor sound than Gregory has in this recording. I probably wouldn't bring the mouthpiece that I mostly play for everything to a pop session. It sounds like he's playing a really laser-focused metal mouthpiece, maybe a Berg Larsen or a Dukov or something like that. So when I read the story behind this recording, I was really kind of torn on it because it's just so weird. It's so weird that it would be a tenor saxophone pitch shifted. But then I listened even closer and okay, like I already believe Forshaw's story as unlikely as it seems, but I feel like I can independently verify that this is indeed a pitch shifted tenor saxophone. And it all comes down to when Steve Gregory switches registers during that final ascending line. This example is from a little bit later in the piece when he restates the solo, listen for it and try to hear if you can hear a sort of shift in his sound halfway through the line. So it was subtle, but if you were listening to it, you could hear him change registers and that concert D kind of pops out because that's where he hits the octave key and presses down a bunch of keys on the saxophone at the same time and it makes for a kind of register pop. It's subtle, it's just that that on the D kind of pops out. Like here's me on tenor saxophone just making the register jump a bit down the octave and I'm really emphasizing the pop so you can hear how it sounds. So that's how a saxophone sounds when it makes a register jump and only a tenor saxophone would make a register jump on a concert D. An alto saxophone wouldn't have made the jump yet because it's a higher instrument, it would be lower down. So this has to be a tenor saxophone, but tonally it doesn't quite sound like a tenor saxophone. It sounds much more like an alto saxophone. Therefore, this forensic saxophone investigation has led me to conclude that it is indeed a tenor saxophone playing in concert D flat minor, then pitch shifted up a semitone to D minor, which gives it a brighter tone and a smooth glissando path up to concert E. Case closed. At any rate, 
let me um, climb out of this rabbit hole and get back to Patrick's question. I think that your neighbor plays this solo because she likes playing a sax melody that everyone knows because it's fun to play. It has lots of big jumpy glissandos. It lets you kind of fly all over the instrument, but it's not too difficult to play, especially on alto saxophone. If you're playing it on that, you're in the key of B minor. It's kind of just like a nice key with a lot of natural notes, and it's a fun solo to play. And I mean, scales are great to practice, but in the end, if you're playing an instrument, you probably want to play cool melodies that are fun to play. So that's that's my guess. And now that my neighbors have heard me record this solo on not one, but two different saxophones in multiple different keys, they probably feel a little like you do. Man, that was a way more in-depth analysis of the Careless Whisper saxophone solo than I was expecting to go into when I picked this question, but uh, that was that was fun. Goes to show, I never really know where these mailbag episodes are going to wind up, and that's one of the reasons it's so fun to make them. And I should mention that after I recorded the segment you just listened to, I went back and I did watch all of Dan Forshaw's video. It's great. He comes at it from the other end as well. He uses DJ software to lower the source recording a half-step, which also makes it pretty clear that it was a tenor saxophone. All right, our last question comes from TJ. TJ writes, why do we laugh at music? I always thought I was alone in this because my friends have made fun of me for it, but when there's a great guitar solo or a singer hits an amazing note, I always laugh. I've noticed on strong songs that you'll do the same thing when listening to a particularly impressive part of a song. Why do you think hearing something amazing like that evokes laughter? It's not like the song is funny or anything. I know there probably isn't a scientific answer to this, but I figured it would be an interesting thing to ask about. So yeah, I mean, I, I definitely do laugh a lot on this show, and I laugh all the time when I'm listening to music, and TJ is completely right. That is totally my default reaction. When someone does something ridiculous on a recording, when I'm listening with friends, or even when I'm listening by myself, I mean, I'll just lose it. I'll start cracking up when it's just a really bonkers, you know, bass riff or saxophone solo or drum fill or something. It just, it tickles me and it makes me laugh. That's just my default reaction. Laughter is really interesting. I don't, you know, know a whole lot about the physiological and psychological underpinning of laughter, but I know that laughter, it's a really complicated thing for us to do. It can mean something different in a lot of different cultures, even subcultures, just among people who you know. There are people for whom laughter just has a much different kind of energy to it than than others, and laughter can kind of even evoke negative feelings among some people. But you don't just laugh because something's funny, right? You laugh because something is delightful or because something is uncomfortable. A lot of times we'll laugh when we're in a kind of uncomfortable, weird, awkward situation. Um, horror movies make me laugh when I'm really scared, and then I kind of laugh. And it's not because something funny just happened. It's more that it's like a way of releasing the tension of the fear that I just felt. And I always feel that the one-two punch of feeling terrified and then laughing at yourself. I think that that's a big part of the pleasure of watching horror movies, especially with other people. Laughter is also something that's really shared. It's infectious right? Like when someone has a great laugh that you know and you're hanging out and they just start laughing at something, it makes you laugh even more. It's one of the reasons that seeing stand-up comedy with other people in the audience is so much fun. A stand-up comic might only be kind of funny, but if you're in a crowd with a whole bunch of people and everyone's really laughing together, it makes their jokes seem a lot more funny, which can be really fun. When I laugh, when I'm listening to music in particular, when I'm reacting to something incredible that I just heard, for me, that's just an expression of delight and joy. I mean, it's not because I think it's funny, like a punchline to a joke. It's because I'm feeling this just delight, this joy at having heard this amazing thing. And that joy kind of just bubbles out. And the way that it bubbles out is in laughter. You know, I'll often clap, you know, when someone just does something bananas, you'll be like, oh. 
and you kind of clap one time. That's definitely another way of just sort of releasing that delight, releasing the sort of effervescent feeling of joy that you get when you hear something incredible like that. And I think that that's just, it's a wonderful feeling. It's a wonderful thing to express and to share with the people in the room with you. So TJ, it's great that you do this. I mean, your friends shouldn't make fun of you for it. They should seek to emulate you because what you're doing is you're just expressing a really positive feeling in a way that other people can share in. So like I said, laughter is very complicated. We laugh for all sorts of reasons. But when I laugh in reaction to something incredible that I just heard musically, that's what I'm doing. I'm just expressing joy. And I think that that's what you're doing too. And more people should express joy more of the time. And that'll do it for this latest mailbag episode. Thanks, as always, to everyone who wrote in with a question. And if you've got one that you want to send in or music recommendation, feedback on the show, really whatever, send an email to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. There are all sorts of ways that you can support me making this show. You can, of course, become a patron. And thanks so much to all of my patrons. If you would like to join their ranks, go to patreon.com slash strong songs. I've set up some new goals. Like I mentioned, there's a new Patreon exclusive podcast feed for everyone in the quarter note and higher tier. I'm going to be doing more with that in the future, which will be really fun. And if we can hit the next couple of goals, there will be some new bonuses that I'm going to do for patrons. So patreon.com slash strong songs. Go sign up for that and help us reach those goals. And you know, Patreon is great, but I've actually heard from several people recently who'd like to support the show, but don't want to sign up for a recurring thing like Patreon. And you can actually make a one-time donation as well. There's a PayPal link that makes that super easy. You can find that down in the show notes as well. Of course, one of the best things you can do to support the show is just spread the word about it, and that costs nothing. So if you know someone who might like the show, tell them about it. This episode's outro soloist is the great Luke Price on the fiddle, so stick around for Luke and I'll be back in two weeks with yet another strong song.